Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning to our folks in Bluffton. We love you. We're going to be in Numbers 22 today, if you want to go ahead and turn that direction. Thank you so much, Matt. Numbers 22. We'll start in verse 22. I just want to mention, uh, I, you guys know me, I'm obviously ecstatic about the Supreme Court ruling this week. Um, abortion... Roe v. Wade should have been overturned a long, long time ago. Um, and so we're very, very thankful. Um, amen. I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of a church that's unashamedly pro-life. We have no qualms with saying we believe every individual is created in the image of God. Um, just a few things. I think that in this season, um, we have been committed for the last, you know, couple years to being a church that's cares for the orphan and the widow. One of the greatest mistakes the American church made historically was giving the orphan and the widow to the government and saying, good luck. Um, we pay our taxes, deal with that. Um, that that's not the gospel commission. And so um, with this uh, ruling, which we're excited about, there's still a lot of work to be done. One, we want to make sure that we continue to proclaim the Imago Dei, that the every, uh, every child is created in the image of God. Um, we've got more than just a legal problem in our nation. We've got a heart problem. And so we need to keep preaching this gospel to in our house. We want to celebrate every child, every color, um, every disability. They're a gift to us that we'll cherish and love. Um, and three, I think just to mention that with our Renew Family Ministry that we've, we've started, where we're really trying to make sure that we are people who care for the orphan and widow, just want to encourage you to continue to, to sow there. I know many of you cook meals uh, for families that are adopting or fostering. Many of you babysit. I know we've got a few more families that will be fostering this year that are going through the process. Uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that doesn't just proclaim an idea, doesn't just stand behind truth, but also lives out truth. Um, and so I want to say thank you for that, and uh, let's get after it. Now, we've been praying for a long time. This is an answer to prayer, period, um, for this to be overturned, but this is also the time to get after it, to get behind our pregnancy crisis centers, get behind our families that are fostering and adopting. It's a big deal. Amen. All right, let's pray over the word. We're going to, again, be in Numbers 22, starting in verse 22. So, Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus because of the great work that he's accomplished for us on Calvary. Or we plead the blood of the precious Lamb of God over this church and over our families and over our region. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, baptize us afresh in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Challenge us. Come on, church. We're open to being challenged this morning, Holy Spirit. We want to bring you a fresh submission. So convict, correct, lead. We love you. We love you in this place, Holy Spirit. Come on, church, would you just tell them, I love you, Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful for you in my life, Holy Spirit. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, I've talked to you before about Dr. Craig Keener's work called Miracles. It's a really important work, uh, scholastic work over the last uh, couple decades. And in Miracles, Craig Keener is going after David Hume's idea. And what Hume taught in the Enlightenment age was essentially this. We know miracles don't happen because they don't happen. And so the, the Western world really believed this idea. Miracles don't happen because, well, 
they don't happen. Um, that is fundamentally flawed on like a hundred different levels. Um, but Keener basically went after the idea that miracles have happened for all generations um, and that every people group, they have stories of miraculous works, that the supernatural realm is clearly a thing. And Keener documented this um, on multiple levels. And it's documenting like uh, x-ray, cancer, tumor, prayer, tumor gone. Like that's there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documentations of miraculous events like this. The idea, Hume's idea, that miracles don't happen because all we see is the natural realm and they don't happen because they don't happen. That idea is foolish, foolishness and not consistent with history. And so uh, Keener, in, in, in one chapter of his work, again called Miracles, he begins to document a few things that missiologists study. Missiologists are people who study missions work, essentially, the spreading of the gospel. And there are these phenomena, these events that have happened throughout history, um, but I want to show you a few today because they highlight a a theme in our scripture really nicely. Um, But the idea of Christianity being preached, the gospel being preached, and there are times in history where there are showdowns, if you will, between Christian ministers and shamans, or Christian ministers and witch doctors. Christian ministers come to a region, proclaim the gospel. Paul said in Thessalonians that my gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, meaning that there was a supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that moved alongside the preaching of the gospel. And so there are these times in history where missionaries have gone in, preached the gospel, and they've had showdowns with shaman, witch doctors, uh, voodoo doctors, and the gospel comes out triumphant. I wanted to share just a few, um, help us move forward with the ideas in the text today. Keener tells of a close friend of his who grew up in South Africa, whose grandfather had become a Christian, and uh, his grandfather was a tailor. And so there was a man who comes into his shop and says to the grandfather, um, he says, I'm going to give you some medicine. The grandfather was struggling with sickness. Uh, the medicine would have been some kind of herbal, uh, herbal, um, uh, witch doctor practice thing, herbs that are used in spiritual practices to bring healing. The grandfather responds that he was a Christian and now only relied on the power of God and would not participate in witchcraft. The man says to the grandfather, um, my spirits are stronger than your God. Uh, and the grandfather says, no. And he says, well, let's have a showdown tonight at midnight. And so the tailor goes home. He fasts for the day. And he goes home and he tells his family, 1130 tonight, we're going to begin to pray. At 1130, they begin to pray. And at 1145, they hear the sounds of large footsteps circling their house. At about midnight, the sound of the footsteps stop and the family goes to bed. In the morning, the man comes back to the tailor's shop And says, he shakes the Christian's hand and says, my spirits came to your house last night, but they were not able to come in because of the great fire that surrounds your home. Keener goes on to tell another story of families in the Philippines who would spend like a year's worth of wages. Like they would save for a whole year to buy a pig, to bring the pig to some kind of shaman exorcist. They would sacrifice the pig and the shaman might be able to deliver their demonically oppressed family members. Now, there was a Christian missionary who came to the region and started offering deliverance for free. No pig needed. The city, uh, hallelujah. Save your bacon for bacon. Um, the, The whole city comes to the Christian missionary, receives deliverance, and the city comes to know Christ. 
Keener shows and missiologists will show this over and over and over again. Christian ministry, missionaries who proclaim this free gospel of grace because of the blood of Jesus and walk in the power of the spirit colliding with the spiritualists, the shaman, the witch doctors of the world. And as the, the shaman, the witch doctor uh, falls flat before the power of our God, regions come to know Jesus. This is a common phenomenon throughout, throughout all of history. God doesn't use men and women who are into manipulating the spiritual realm to, to move forward their own agenda or for their own personal gain. God is looking for Christian men and women who are living lives under the hand of the Holy Spirit, who will preach the gospel, lay their hands on the sick, cast out demons, not because they want to be seen by the nations, but because they want Jesus Christ to be seen by the nations. And what we're going to see in scripture today is today we find the passage where we talk about Balaam's error. The angel of the Lord will say to Balaam, your way is perverse before me. So we've said before that three times in the New Testament, uh, in Peter, in Jude, in Revelation, the way or the error of Balaam is referred to, the Lord will say, or, or, or Peter will say that, that there are some false teachers who have gone after the way of Balaam and in many ways are, are effort in this sermon series is to try to understand what is the way of Balaam and what does the New Testament mean when it warns us of walking in Balaam's way. So as we read today, we'll read the famous passage of Balaam's donkey being more discerning than Balaam, um, which is obviously intended to be comical and ironic, but there's quite a profound message here that we find in the scripture. And again, we're going to talk about Balaam's way. When God takes, remember we talked last year or last year, we probably did. Um, but last week, we talked about the archaeological find, uh, the Dier Allah, in which they found plaster that tells stories of the great sorcerer Balaam, son of Beor, and his um, kind of triumphs and interactions with the spiritual realm and, and pagan gods. So we know that Balaam was not just a, your run-of-the-mill witch doctor. He was a great sorcerer. He was known for literally hundreds of miles as being a man who had power in the spiritual realm that could bless or curse, um, and it would do so if he brought him money. And so Balaam was... Again, not your witch doctor at the flea market. He was, he was the witch doctor on TV. He was known for hundreds of miles. But today, God's going to show us that donkeys have more spiritual insight than even the greatest witch doctors of the day. Verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went, him being Balaam. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey and turned her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and he stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. By God, he was already a fool. 
I wish, uh, I wish a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you. Here's our line. You want to highlight this in your Bible? Because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with them, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Now, last week... We read, and let me just give you a little context here in case you're just jumping in with us. We're reading of uh, the life of Israel. They are currently living in the plains of Moab. They are have not yet crossed the Jordan, but they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, in which they know that, that they're going to start a great conquest. In the Jordan, they're going to have battles. They're going to drive people out of the promised land so that they can possess the land that the Canaanites and the Edomites currently live in as a promise that God promised to Abraham. But currently, they're in the plains of Moab, and they don't really want to fight with Moab. God told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2 that the Moabites, the Midianites, were descendants of Lot and that Israel needed to leave them alone. And so Moses had no intent on fighting Moab. But Balak, who is the king of Moab, saw millions of Israelites camped in the plains of Moab, and he got very, very nervous. Now, when Balak gets very nervous of the, of the millions of Israelites camping before him, he knows that the Moabites have no shot at, at defeating them in military battle. And so what Balak does is he decides that he will enlist Balaam, the great sorcerer of the day, the witch doctor of the day, to come and curse Israel so that Balak will be able to overtake her. And so first, Balak sends messengers to Balaam with, the, the scripture says, with the, um, the fee for divination. And so Balaam is a witch doctor, a sorcerer, who people send money to so that Balaam will curse people. This is Balaam's career. This is how he makes his money. He curses um, or blesses or conjures up some kind of spell. And so they send some um, princes and dignitaries to Balaam with a wad of cash and say, come back to Balak and curse Israel for us. Balaam has... There's no reason to believe that Balaam has any relationship with Yahweh at this point, the God of Israel. But he says, let me go pray. Let me go and interact with the God of Israel and see if he will allow me to curse Israel. So the first night, Balaam goes to sleep and God says, the people of Israel are blessed. And we're reminded of Genesis 12. Those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. You are not to go with them. So Balaam goes back to the dignitaries, the princes that have come from Moab and says, I can't take your money. I, I can't curse Israel. So they go back to Balak, and Balak believes that Balaam must want more money. And so he sends more dignitaries. The Bible says he sends more princes of higher authority and of greater dignity to kind of stroke Balaam's ego. And he sends essentially a blank check. And they say to Balaam, you can have whatever you want. Just come with us and curse Israel. That night, Balaam goes before the Lord, and the Lord says, go ahead. 
And so this is where we pick up today. Balaam has um, given in to the temptation because of money and because of ego. This is the greatest career opportunity of his life. He decides he will go to curse Israel to gain the money, to gain standing. And we picked up today as he... He saddles his donkey and begins to make the journey, which would have taken weeks, hundreds of miles, to go from uh, Peor to, to the Moabites. We said last week that under the text, throughout the entirety of the scripture, there's this, there's this dichotomy that's fleshing out. The dichotomy is this. Numbers, uh, from Exodus on, uh, the Pentateuch largely revolves around one man, Moses. Moses is a man of intimacy with the Lord. The Lord calls him a friend. Moses' face shines with glory. Moses performs great signs and wonders. He strikes a rock and water pours forth. Moses is a man marked by supernatural power, miraculous power. He is called a prophet of prophets. Moses knows God, and so on one hand, we've read about Moses now for the entirety of the Pentateuch, and on the other hand, we find Balaam. Balaam is not a friend of God, he's a manipulator of the gods in order to gain power. Balaam's never called a prophet, uh, not in the way that Moses is called a prophet, he's called a sorcerer. Balaam is not a friend of God, he's a stranger to God who hopes to gain spiritual power to bolster himself up. And so we see from start to finish in this narrative, we're finding that God is not pleased with sorcerers. In Deuteronomy, he tells us Christians to have nothing to do with necromancy. God's not pleased with witchcraft. God is looking for men and women who walk under the power of the Holy Spirit, hear His voice, submit to His will, who are marked with miraculous power. There there are a people of God who do know things by supernatural revelation, but the, the foundation is friendship, intimacy, and a submission to the glory of God. It is never witchcraft, sorcery, manipulation, and ego. And so we find that in the text that there's this, there's this great unveiling that's happening as, and, and a clashing that we're seeing really between the life of Moses and the life of Balaam. We're going to see that Moses' anointing power, authority triumphs far over the greatest witch doctor of the day. Now, this week we turn back to find Balaam on his way to meet Balak. The journey from Pethor to Moab would have taken Balaam something like four weeks. And we find him journeying with two servants and on a donkey, a female donkey, which we learn he has ridden for a large portion of his life. The heart of this portion seems to me to show us that Balaam will, for the rest of the narrative, be struck with some kind of fear of the Lord. Um, we find at the end of our passage today, the, the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, your way is perverse before me. And Balaam says, I've sinned, I will go back. And so we're going to see in Balaam this mixed bag of motives. He's not a man fully submitted to the glory of God. He's not a man surrendered to the will and the plans and, and the sovereignty of God. But he is a man who has some measure of terror and self preservation, if you will, um, fearing the power of God. And so for the rest of the narrative, he's going to kind of only do what God tells him to do. And I think we see that that's out of a fear of being struck down because after all, there's an angel of the Lord with a great sword standing before him. The last thing you want to do is lose your head to the angel of the Lord. Okay. I just can't imagine that's going to be good. So we're told of three encounters that the story gives us three encounters here of Balaam and the angel of the Lord on the road to meet Balak of Moab. First, 
As Balaam journeys towards Moab, the scripture says that the angel of the Lord stands before Balaam with his sword drawn. This is actually going to, these kind of narratives happen a few times. Do you remember um, when uh, the, the Lord stands before Moses, frustrated, burning in anger because there's been a lack of circumcision? Do you remember Joshua is going to stand before the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn? He's going to say to the angel of the Lord, are you for us or against us? And the angel of the Lord essentially says, no, you're, you are either for me or against me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a follower of you. You must submit to me. And so we're going to see several times in the scriptures where the angel of the Lord stands with a sword. And it should be an awful, terrifying encounter with the glory of God. And so now Balaam on his donkey is marching towards Balak. And an angel of the Lord stands with a sword before him. But Balaam is so dull spiritually that he has no idea. Okay, again, the greatest sorcerer of the day, he's known for hundreds of miles as being a seer, uh, a witch doctor, a man who knows the spiritual realm. He's dull, deaf, blind, and dumb, riding his donkey straight towards his own destruction. So the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and turns aside into a field, skirts Balaam's destruction. Next, the angel of the Lord stands in a narrow path. So the angel of the Lord goes further and stands in a narrow path between two vineyards. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with the sword drawn and presses against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And Balaam gets off and, and beats the donkey again. Again, the donkey sees what Balaam doesn't see. Finally, the angel of the Lord stands with his sword drawn again in such a narrow place where the donkey cannot run to the right or run to the left. So the donkey's only option is to lay herself down. And so the donkey sits down, cowers before the angel of the Lord with Balaam on top. Balaam gets off with his staff and begins to beat the donkey. He's so frustrated, the scripture tells us that he's embarrassed, and he begins to, in rage, beat the donkey. So God opens the donkey's mouth, and there's, again, without a doubt, a measure of Comedic relief in the text. God has a sense of humor. And and the donkey says, What have I done to cause you to strike me? Now Balaam in his great frustration and rage is just going to have a conversation with the donkey as if this is normal. Um, He's so mad that he's not thinking clearly. He begins to, he says to the donkey, You've made a fool of me. Again, the donkey didn't need to make a fool of, of Balaam. He's making a fool of himself. His own stupidity is showing. Firstly, by having an argument with a donkey. He says, you made a fool of me, and if I had a sword, I would kill you. The donkey says, this is normal. You've ridden me all your life. Have I ever treated you this way? Immediately, God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord with sword drawn, and he throws himself to the ground in a posture of worship and says, I have sinned. The angel of the Lord asks the same question. Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Before he has the opportunity to answer the question, the angel of the Lord says, I would strike you down if she didn't skirt my wrath. Now, the language here is really strong. The Hebrew is really strong. Um, the, the angel of the Lord actually says to Balaam, I have come out as your adversary. That word adversary there is Satan. It's where we get the word Satan. And so Satan is known as the adversary of God and God's people. When the word Satan is used as a proper noun, it's referring to the person of Satan, the, the, the fallen demonic ruler. Um, 
so it's a very strong word. Satan means, uh, I am, uh, it means a great adversary. And here, obviously, the angel of the Lord is not referring to himself as the person, Satan, but he is using that noun as an adjective and saying, I've come out as your adversary. I am so against you, Balaam. And it's here where the, where the angel of the Lord will say, your way, Balaam, your way is perverse before me. And here we find the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, that will become the theme of Balaam's life. The way or the error of Balaam. Again, Jude, Second Peter, Revelation. and Revelation, the churches are warned of the way of Balaam, and God calls it here perverse. Balaam's response, again, is somewhat sincere. I think that he really is struck with fear. He doesn't want that holy sword on his neck. But he's also not going to become a man of pure worship. So again, we find a distinction. We're going to find a dichotomy, a, a separation between what it means to be a person who really lives under the fear of the Lord and what it means to be a person driven by ego and self-preservation. So let's try to extract the principles that the Holy Spirit obviously wants us to extract from this text. First, the donkey sees, but Balaam marches ahead. I think the Lord wants us to see that even in our culture, in our hour, in every generation, there are some spiritualists, there are some people who prop themselves up as having great spiritual insight and spiritual wisdom, but God says He will confound the wisdom of this world with the foolish. And in other words, God is showing us here that, that there are at times people who look so drop it, you've got to pay for it. Um, what we see in the, in the, through the text is that we will always have palm readers and sorcerers and for, forever, as long as we have Netflix, we're going to have people who prop themselves up as great spiritualists, but God calls them dull. God calls them blind. God is showing us here that even the donkey sees what Balaam does not see. There are some who will yield some sort of power, some kind of encampment, but they are blind. And what we're reminded here is that there, there are some who feel spiritual, but in this faith, in this gospel, and by the filling and empower of the Holy Spirit, we have a truer spirituality. We have a higher spirituality. We have a deeper life. The Bible acknowledges that there are some who peddle in the spiritual realm. They have, may have measure of insight, revelation, power, but the Bible teaches us that there is a higher, purer, more thorough spiritual life, and it comes only in one way, by dying a death before the cross of Christ, being resurrected with newness of life by the power of the Spirit, and by walking in intimacy with the Holy Spirit for the entirety of your life. 
There is a higher life. The saints of old, you talk about Andrew Murray or um, even A.W. Tozer would talk about the higher life, the deeper life. That there are some who will walk in such a sensitivity to the voice and the leading of the Holy Spirit that they will walk in power and revelation and anointing. They will have such nearness, such friendship, such surrender to the power and the anointing and the person of the Holy Spirit that they will have a truer, higher spirituality. It will make the spirituality of this world look foolish. This higher life, this deeper life, is is not a life of manipulating the spiritual realm, trying to manipulate God for power. It is a life of yielding to the Spirit day in and day out. The charismatic world, the Pentecostal world for too long has had men and women who stand on stages and hope to be seen and crave your applause and want to build a ministry for the sake of their own ego. But God is looking for in this hour men and women who are humble and meek and lowly and want nothing to do with their face being on a platform, want everything to do with the glory of Christ Jesus covering the earth. God is looking for nameless, faceless men and women of God who will preach this gospel with conviction under the power of the Spirit, not because they want to be seen, but because they are marked with the true jealousy of the glory of God. I want this higher life. I want a truer spirituality. I want a deeper life with the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't want showmanship. I don't want us to just try to gather crowds to show them how spiritual we are. We don't want to use the gifts of the Spirit with hopes of being seen as if we're just another shaman. We're not shaman. We're friends of God who walk under the power and the anointing of the Spirit, fully submitted to His Lordship and abandoned to His Gospel. Higher life. Sensitivity to God's Spirit. Now, I was reading this week a book by R.T. Kendall that came out, I guess, a year or so ago called... Prophetic integrity. Um, I would recommend it to you. It was really good, really good. Um, but Archie Kendall talked in one portion about an idea from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards would say that one of the markers of really being born again, how can I know that I'm really saved? Jonathan Edwards said one of the markers is being jealous for God's glory. That, that no man or woman outside of truly dying at the cross and being resurrected with the power of the Spirit, no man or woman without really having a work of God in their heart can be jealous for God's glory. But the church must be definitionally jealous for God's glory. Now we don't talk about this at all in modern Western Christianity. And shame on us. What does it mean to be jealous for God's glory? We, we, um, I think Kendall mentioned in the book, do you, you probably heard Oprah Winfrey talk before about um, she was a young lady in church. She kind of grew up in a nominal church, and, and a pastor said, um, God is a jealous God. And she walked away from church because she thought that if God is jealous, that, that that's some kind of lowly um, sin. And we do teach that in human relationships, jealousy can be sin. I would say, though, that jealousy in covenantal relationships is not sin. It's, it's an expression of true love. That's neither here nor there. 
But our God is a jealous God. Our God is an all-consuming fire. Our God is a God who strikes men who put their hand on the altar. Our God is the holy God of Acts who strikes Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. Our God is the holy God of Israel who descends upon Israel with a great cloud. And all the priests fall before him because the thickness of his presence is so heavy. Our God is glorious and he will not share his glory with any other. That's a plain scriptural theme. Why we ignore it, I have no idea. Study Isaiah chapter 44 through 46. God says over and over, Is there another God beside me? I know not one. I will not share my glory. He's going to say, Have no other gods before me. I alone am God of the universe. He is glorious and perfect and sovereign and supreme in all of His ways. And the true church of Christ must be enamored with His glory. When we pray, hallowed be your name. I pray it every day and I am praying, God, in this region, let the name of Jesus be so glorious and so holy and so beautiful. In this region, would every knee bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In this region, let your name be holy to us. True prophets. True men and women of God who know the anointing and the power of the Spirit. They're not showmen. They're not men and women who crave the, the affections of the crowd. They're men and women who crave the crowd to hit their face before Jesus and to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no one worthy of glory but this one. And if that's not the desire of this church, it is not a church. That's not the desire of our hearts. We are not Christians. We've talked so much in recent years about how Christianity can be beneficial to you. We have not talked in recent years about how Christianity is beneficial to God. We haven't talked about the church's call to glorify, to really worship. All those songs we sing are about you and what benefits we can have and how we can feel better. When's the last time we just sang, holy, beautiful, splendid is our God. And when the church gets caught up in really honoring and fearing and revering the glory of God, then maybe then we'll have power. But God is not looking for Balaam's. He's looking for men and women like Moses. And the great distinction that's going to flesh out here is that Balaam, again, has no fear of the Lord No love or adoration or jealousy for God. He has no intimacy with the Holy Spirit. He just wants money. He just wants the praise of man. And he just wants to be seen as powerful. And many Christians fall to this trap. The Bible warns it of us again in the New Testament on three occasions. Of not falling to, we're going to define here, the perverse way of Balaam. Again, one, Balaam's way has no intimacy with God, no love for God's glory. Two, Balaam's way is self-motivated and just wants money, ego, and pride. Three, it craves the praise of man. We are not after the praise of man. We're after the nations bowing their knee and celebrating Jesus. We need to get that old Moravian theme stuck in our heads that he is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. We preach this gospel and proclaim this message because it is liberating, it is life-giving, and it purchases, as we proclaim it, people come into the kingdom and encounter the beauty and the glory of God. 
I think, man, I don't want to talk for too long, but I, I think it's worth pondering here that Balaam is going to operate in a measure of self-preservation. It looks like the fear of the Lord. It looks like a true terror and all of God's glory. But at the end of the day, Balaam's going to obey only because Balaam doesn't want that holy sword on his throat. And so for the rest of the narrative, Balaam's going to say, he's not going to curse Israel, he's only going to say what God has him say. And remember he says here, God, if you want me to go back, I'll just go back. I don't, I, and, and again, that's when the gun's pointed at your head, you put your hands up. Um, if you want me to go back, I'll go back. And then, then he's going to say for the next couple chapters everything that God has him say. He's going to look like he's had an encounter with God, and this encounter's produced something. But in reality, this encounter's only produced self-preservation because when the blessing and cursing theme is over, in Numbers 25, we learn that Balaam's going to go back to Moab and say, I can't curse them for you, but maybe you should think about sending your women down and enticing them into sexual relationships, and then Israel will abandon her God and you can take her down. So Balaam has no real want to submit to God, to walk under the hand and the power of God. He's still just after his own well-being. He's still trying to make a buck from Moab. And we need to be careful and cautious of this. That when the God's holy presence descends upon a church, and when a church has a true encounter with the glory of God, we need to make sure that that encounter with God's glory does not just produce in us some fleshly measure of self-preservation, but we need to keep our faces in the carpet until we're, we're conquered by a true fear of God. We need a holy terror again. God is loving God is also a holy, all-consuming fire. God is a gracious and good Father who loves His children. He also intends that we respect and revere Him. We need to be a church that really has a fear of God. There ought to be a fear of God on your life in the way that you preach. There ought to be a fear of God on your life in the way that you share the gospel, the way that you walk in the gifts of the Spirit, the way that you do business, the way that you parent, the way that you're in marital relationships. You ought to have a holy fear of the almighty, glorious God of the universe. Again, God is not looking for showmen. The, the, great, the great fear, my great fear for the charismatic and Pentecostal world, those who believe in the power of the Spirit, is this. Um, we see God's glory and we get up like Balaam and go about our own business, still craving money and ego. We have some encounter with God's presence. Maybe we prayed in tongues or we saw a healing. And we get up and view ourselves as spiritual. But in reality, we never really surrendered. We never really um, died on the altar. We get up too quick from the ground. The saints of old, my grandparents used to talk about pressing in and praying through. We say, repeat after me and get up and go. And we, we have these short encounters with God. And we haven't allowed the encounters to really penetrate our hearts. And to transform us. On one hand, the, the, the Western Christianity, the cessationist Christianity, which says that, that, that God doesn't really move in power anymore, is weak and shoddy because uh, God is constantly displaying the foolishness of this world's spirituality. God wants to use His church as a token of what real power looks like. And so it's shameful when the church denies the person of the Holy Spirit because it's a great part of evangelism is the world seeing the power of the Spirit. On the other hand, there are some of us who love the power of the Spirit because it seems to us to be entertaining. 
but we've never really laid on the altar and allowed it to transform our lives. And God wants today men and women marked with jealousy for God's glory and a real fear of God who will walk in power, not because they want to be seen, but because they want Jesus to be seen. And the last thing I'll say, because I'm sweating, is this. Um, the, the theme, there's a theme that comes out of this text, which again can be comical. Pastors always say to each other, this is like every seminary uh, ever, when people get up to preach, you know, when you go to, you go to school for ministry, you have to preach in front of the class and everyone always says, if God can, can speak through Balaam's King James word for donkey, he can surely speak through you. Um, that's like the oldest ministry joke ever. Um, there is a measure of truth to that in the text. Again, donkeys are symbols of humility and meekness and slowness. And there is a measure of this in the text that God's saying, he's not looking for Balaam who's seated high. There are some of you who feel like I'm not intellectual enough, I'm not charismatic enough, I'm not influential enough, and God says, I don't want anything to do with the the things of this world that look wise. I'll take even the foolish things, anoint them in power. Paul says to the Corinthians, not many of you are wise in the world's eyes, but God is using the foolish things to confound the wise. You don't need to be charismatic, you don't need to be sharp-dressed and intellectual, you need to be surrendered, submitted, and humble. Surrendered, submitted, and humble. So let's pray. I'll I'll close this up. We'll pray for a minute. We want to ask God to really drive these themes home in our hearts. And then we'll step into a time of ministry. So Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Lord. We reject the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam. Would you purge us, purge our families, Lord, of a a craving for the affections of man? Lord, would you not find in us men and women who use spirituality for personal gain? Would you crucify our flesh, Lord? And Father, would you find us people who live and walk like Moses, who know your glory, who follow the cloud and the fire by night, Lord, we want the higher life, the life that's sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We want to know you in the secret place of prayer. We want an anointing on this church that's unmatched, God. We want an anointing on our lives that draws the lost. We want the power of God on our lives in such a way that we see blind eyes healed and dead people raised. We want to see the deaf hear. We want to see the demonically oppressed get up whole in a right sound mind. We want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ preach and souls come to know Him. Lord, but we want to do it in humility and sincerity. Baptize us in Your power, God. Maybe if you just open your hands, I just want to pray this. Just say, here I am, God, send me. Here I am, Lord. I'm a servant, Lord. Paul most often called himself a doulos, a slave of God. Lord, my greatest joy is being a slave of you. I'll go where you have me go. I'll say what you have me say. Come on, Holy Spirit, anoint us afresh today in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people say amen.